This is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm Katie Mullally. First this morning, we speak with Dr. Bonnie Baxter. She is a microbiologist at Westminster College in Salt Lake City. She's also the co-founder and director of the Great Salt Lake Institute. She talks about the crisis of evaporation of Great Salt Lake and how we can help urge our legislators to take to support the lake before it is too late. Then Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American, will tell us what's behind the FAA grounding of all planes on January 11th that resulted in thousands of canceled and delayed planes. She also talks in depth about her field of expertise, including artificial intelligence. These guests, when we return, you're listening to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City. Stay with us. We'll be back after these words from our underwriters. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Our next guest is Bonnie Baxter, a professor of microbiology at Westminster College in Salt Lake City. Dr. Baxter, along with her undergraduate students, studies the photobiology of halophiles which are salt-tolerant bacteria, and the microbial diversity of the Great Salt Lake. She is the co-founder and director of Westminster's Great Salt Lake Institute and is here to talk with us today about the Great Salt Lake and the crisis we all face to save it before it is too late. Bonnie Baxter, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Hi, you guys. Thanks for having me. Well, back on January... Fourth, you and a team of other scientists released a report to the state legislature entitled Emergency Measures Needed to Rescue the Great Salt Lake from Ongoing Collapse. This is a pretty dire call to those in charge to help try and save what is a, an important natural resource for all of us. Can you give us a few of the main points of that report? Yeah, I think... I think one of the most important points that we underscore is the rate of decline of the water as we've been seeing it over the last few years um, and how this meshes with what's going on with the, the mega drought in the Southwest. Um, and I, I think that the rate of decline is because of water diversions, but we're sort of slamming up against uh, changes that are coming about because of climate change. And so um, we've put ourselves in a situation where the this rate of decline, um, we we can't recoup from it if we get a good water year. Like, like it's great seeing the snow outside right now, um, but we have, um, we probably won't feel a lot of this in the lake because we have to first recharge our aquifers that are so dry from the hot, dry weather we've been having in the last few years. So um, we don't have that rebound anymore. And so I think um, one of the main points of the report is we're already seeing some signs um, of, of ecosystem collapse and we are seeing a rate of decline that is unsustainable. And uh, we just felt like as scientists, we would be irresponsible to not say that out loud. You know, we need to let people know what we're seeing and, um, and what we think the solution is, which is getting water to the lake. That report got 
a lot of coverage from the New York Times to CNN, ABC. So there was a lot of response from national media. Have you received any response from the legislature, the people that you that were your intended audience? Not yet, um, but I think I, I I think we hope that that happens. We we hope we put something in their hands that is a resource for them to understand the problem. And uh, the governor, uh, Governor Cox, actually made a statement yesterday that he was taking the the lake very seriously. Uh, let me say that again because it won't be yesterday and Thursday. <laughs> governor Cox recently made a statement that he is is making Great Salt Lake a priority, and I think also Speaker Brad Wilson has said the same. And I appreciate those words being echoed uh, right now as the legislature begins its job. So I, I think we have heard uh, from those two key officials and in the coming weeks, we should watch on the floor to see what the legislature brings forward. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with Dr. Bonnie Baxter. She's a microbiologist from Westminster College, the co-founder and director of the Great Salt Lake Institute. And she's talking to us about the upcoming legislative session and what we can do as citizens, as residents of this state, and why we should care so much. Bonnie, while it is very much about the biodiversity and the health of the lake. How difficult or easy has it been to really drive home to every single person here that lives in the state, the importance of of not allowing the Great Salt Lake to evaporate? I, I think what's interesting to me is that um, people reach out to me all the time now to tell me that the lake is important to them. Every person that reaches out to me has a different reason why the lake is important to them. And so uh, if I were to collect all of these and put them in a box, it would be labeled, you know, a hundred reasons to care. And I, I think there's so many reasons that are touching people now as the lake is threatened. Folks feel like they need to say it out loud. Like I didn't realize how important this was to me. And you know, I, I think in Park City, of course, uh, folks recognize that the ski industry is a really valuable uh, asset to Utah. We know that brings in tourists. We know that that, you know, fuels the businesses in places like Park City. And th that ski industry is threatened. And, and I think not just because in a given year, 10 to 20% of the snow comes from lake effect, from storms passing over Great Salt Lake and landing that beautiful snow on the mountains, but also because as the lake dries up, the dust uh, lands on the nearby snow and causes it to melt too early. It absorbs sunlight and, and heats up. And, and that melt is not good for the ski industry. So I think there's some really important reasons to care if you live in a community like Park City. Um, and obviously there's around 8,000 jobs on the lake. The, the economic impact of the industries on the lake, for example, the mineral extraction industries that make uh, salt products from the lake and also the brine shrimp cysts that are harvested from the lake, those uh, those cysts are actually sent around the world to farm fish that people eat. 
So I think it's it's really important to understand that the ramifications are broad and far reaching and not just in Utah, but if you care about Utah's economy, you ought to care. If you care about breathing fresh air, you ought to care. You don't have to be a bird watcher. That doesn't have to be your reason to care. Can we talk a little bit about the dust and the toxicity if the lake be bed becomes a dust bowl, which really is, is imminent, you know, it's, as all of you scientists have said over and over and over, four to five years, if things continue the way they are. What is contained in the dust that we will be breathing even up here in, in Park City? I think one of the things I worry about the most is actually the particulates themselves because the, the particulate pollution itself has been known to cause all kinds of respiratory conditions in folks as if we were smoking. That is one giant concern. And then there's a natural sink of arsenic in this area that comes out of the nearby hills. So arsenic will be in the dust. And then uh, there's mercury that from a past history of nearby gold mining. It's um, sort of a byproduct of gold mining when you're smelting atmospheric mercury is released and then it finds its way over a nice salty cloud above a salt lake and makes a salt that can dissolve in water. So that's why we have such a mercury problem in Great Salt Lake. We actually have duck advisories. The ducks that eat the brine flies actually have too much mercury so that, that hunters can't take them uh, without endangering their health. We know we've been studying this mercury problem for a long time. I think one of the byproducts of uh, the copper smelting is selenium. So that is also in the lake, basically because it's a terminal lake. It has been collecting these metals over time because it's at the bottom of the basin. You know, water evaporates, but these these metals, they don't evaporate. They stay right there. Um, so they're now part of the dust. So we've been watching the lake decline for the last few years, specifically exaggerated by the drought that we've faced. Mm -hmm. The Utah River, Rivers Council put out a report in 2021, I think it was, that said that agriculture accounted for 85% of the use of water from the lake or that could have been going into the lake. Is that still the case, especially with all the excessive building and growth that we've seen? I, I don't think 85% is quite right, but around 80, so not so different. Um, and that number comes from some water input calculations from scientists at Utah State. They, they've been working really hard on quantifying how much water is coming into the lake and how much we need to get to the lake um, and also at the state agency um, of the water resources. So I want to give a shout out to the scientists who have been working on that problem. Uh, yeah, so the bulk of the water in our watershed that could come into Great Salt Lake is, is retained by agriculture. That is true. And so then you say, well, why do I worry about my grass? If I'm not going to make that much difference, it, it's because, you know, 20, 25% is actually a big chunk. So mm -hmm. if we can release some of that water, we it's low hanging fruit, like grass isn't doing us any good. So if we can release some of that water by planting more xeric um, greenery in our yards, that is helpful. Um, and I think it also points to the fact that we need conversations in our state about agriculture 
And we need <clears throat> at the legislature, I think, to look at the possibility of buying farmers out. They shouldn't lose their livelihood. Um, we should find a way to release some of that water to the lake in this crisis that we face, and we should compensate them. I was reading this morning on one of the local news channels about uh, another proposed way to release more water was to do some forest thinning and to go up and, you know, but whether it's the native trees or non-native species to actually cut down some of that and that would release more water back into the system. What have you studied about that? Or do you know anything with regards to that? I just read that report this morning um, and it's certainly out of my wheelhouse. I don't study um, forestry, but I, I was part of a discussion group of scientists talking about that. And there are a lot of studies out showing that that has been tried in other places and not worked. So I, I'm not sure what you gain by cutting down some trees. The idea is that they wouldn't suck water from the ground, but trees also help retain water uh, along riparian systems. So I'm I'm really not sure what the net gain would be um, but as a scientist, I would question it. I would want to see studies that backed it up. Bonnie, you co-wrote an obituary that you delivered last fall, I think it was. And I think everyone should listen to it because in, I, I think it was about eight minutes long. It's on YouTube and and we'll share it in our posting of this interview. But you anthropomorphize Great Salt Lake and it just it just hits home in so many ways it's really well done so bravo on that but you start off the obituary by saying something like great salt lake was preceded in death by mono lake and lay and is it lake owens survived, survived by her oh, survived by survived <laughs> yeah. by yeah preceded <laughs> in death by owens lake and survived by her cousin mono, mono lake in california mono lake yes um, you know i i remember when i was in college the save mono lake mm -hmm, awesome. all over every yeah. everywhere to a certain degree that lake was saved but tell us you know how it saw how great salt lake compares to those two lakes i i think it's interesting from a bird's perspective because along this western flyway you can stop and eat at these salty ponds and great salt lake turns out to be like the biggest one with the richest um, buffet if you will for these birds to um to hang out and so we do have 10 million birds that come here and eat brine flies and and brine shrimp which is amazing 338 species but some of those birds also go to the little puddles that are remaining in the owens lake bed and also they go to mona lake so we do have this connectivity through these migratory routes which i think is pretty fun but the thing that saved Mona Lake, I will mention, is enacting the public trust doctrine in a lawsuit. And so relying on that piece of federal legislation that is old, that says a navigable body of water has to be held in trust for the people. They brought that out in a lawsuit and they won. And in part, that was eas more easily done there because the power that they were fighting um, was really LA Water and Power, who was drawing water from Mona Lake. So I, I think when you're fighting a municipality and their water or their private water holdings, that's like one entity. The Great Salt Lake watershed is really different. 
and the problem is different and that the diversions for agriculture are part of why the water isn't getting to the lake. You can't, I mean, using the public trust doctrine will be really messy because that would be a lot of individual lawsuits, for example, that would not be the people rising to sue one entity. So I think it's more complicated here. You know, the Utah way is to do things more kindly and with a smiley face. And I hope we can take that way. I hope we can have conversations. And I've been talking to farmers recently and I've heard such wonderful insights about the whole water set, set, shed system. And so I just want to say out loud, like I've learned so much about water from talking to people who have to think about watering. Um, I think pointing fingers and shutting down conversations is not the way to move this forward because um, the farmers I talk to, they want to be part of the solution. Um, their kids live here too, you know, mm-hmm. they, they don't want them breathing dust. So I think it's really important to wrap our heads around how we can solve this um, where everybody feels like they're part of the solution and not left out. Well, that is a great segue into then what we should do. What bills are there going to be on the floor? How how should we contact our legislators? What what should we do? What should we reference? Yeah, that's good. I I think it's important to point to this report because you know twenty some scientists worked on it. We it is a valid source with references that you can point to, and it's also readable. And you can find it at uh, gsl.byu.edu. So it's got a pretty easy address. Um, So I'd like for people to have that in their hands. And if there's an issue in there that really speaks to you, or you wanna feel like an educated citizen, please read through there. And um, there's some really cool graphics and there's some amazing photographs that were donated uh, for our use in this report. So have a look at it. And if anything lights your fancy, call your legislator because that's what happened last session. People, you know, you know that becomes cliche, called your, call your legislator. Your, your legislator can make a difference. And last year did make a difference. You know, we had a, a number of water laws passed in 20, 2022 um, in the legislative session that were unanimous. These were not, they they were bipartisan, they were unanimous, and they were spurred because people called their legislators. So we really can make a difference because back to my box of 100 reasons to care, each of those legislators also has a reason to care and their constituents do. So find your reason and, and send it forward. Give them a call. Last year, the legislature did pass House Bill 410 called the Great Salt Lake Watershed Enhancement. And to see a bill go through for $40 million with zero legislators opposed was an amazing feat of um, coming together. What has that money gone towards and how is that money helping you in your research and in saving the Great Salt Lake? Yeah, so, so first we should point out that that was federal infrastructure money. Um, we don't like to say that out loud in Utah. Um, so the funding did not come from Utah tax dollars, but we're all federal taxpayers. So the fact that the the legislature voted for their part of infrastructure money, a piece of it to go towards 
uh, Great Salt Lake is wonderful. So I don't want to take away from that, but but the money did not come from our Utah state taxes. Um, and that money uh, is being held in a trust and the trustees were designated and they are the Nature Conservancy and National Audubon. And they are putting together a board of advisors. So the infrastructure is coming together and they are setting a list of priorities. And one of the things that they're investigating early on is the potential to use some of that, I think, in, in examining water rights. Could they make an impact with that money? So right now the money is not going towards research. Um, and if you think about it, there's a lot of research on Great Salt Lake, and what it says is that we need to get water to the lake, right? So if we fund more and more research, it's going to say the same thing. We need to get more water to the lake. So the money really should be used to prioritize, as much as I would like that money to come to my lab for my experiments and to pay my students, it, the money really should be going to investigating how do we get ourselves out of this mess of water diversions? And can we do that in a respectful way where we, for example, you know, buy some water rights for the lake and give the lake some water rights? It doesn't have a water right because it's not designated as something that has a beneficial use by federal law. Now, one of the pieces of legislation last year did say we can now call a beneficial use leasing your water rights back to the state to, to let it go to the lake. We can now call that a beneficial use, but the Homesteading Act says a beneficial use is only if you're building a house or, or agriculture or you're farming fish, like that's all. So Great Salt Lake for forever has not had a water right. And, you know, some of us would like to see that happen. I think if it had a legal right to have water in it at a certain level, you know, then that would, um, th that would make things a little different. So if people can contact their legislators and really understand the bills that are in front of them. What else can we do those individuals to really help this process, help save the lake? I've gotten a lot of great ideas from um, doing public lectures around um, LA, uh, around all, all kinds of communities along the Wasatch Front recently. Folks will come up to me and they'll tell me what they're doing and it, it they're just the most engaging, I should write these in a list. They're the most engaging things. Like a man who was probably 90 told me he does not flush his toilet all day, that he waits until nighttime to flush it. And I thought that was really cool. Um, I had another person tell me that um, when they're heating their shower up, they collect water. Then they put that, they set that bucket aside and use it when they flush their toilet. I, my husband and I, we let our, we're trying to plant buffalo grass in our yard a little at a time, and we've been letting the other grass die. Uh, so some folks are telling me that they're flipping their strip and they're uh, making a difference in taking periods of not watering their grass, for example. Um, some of the farmers I talked to were talking about optimizing when they use water. Uh, how much cutting alfalfa, you know, alfalfa is a perennial crop, so you can let it go dormant and come back later. So if you respect the seasons, you can optimize how you use your water. So I think all of those handy things that we think about uh, in terms of household water use, I think all of those are still in play. I read an article um, in the paper this morning about a community outside of Scottsdale, Arizona, 
that uh, Scottsdale just voted to cut off their water. It's a suburb of, of Scottsdale. And Scottsdale just said, we don't have enough water to give you anymore. So um, they're having to buy water from water trucks to come fill up their water tanks in this subdivision with these half million dollar homes. And, you know, completely deflates the value of their home not to have a connection to water. So this is something that's happening all over the West. And, um, you know, the pictures in this article were a little bit of a warning for us. It, it's it's like um, having to have your water delivered on a truck, paying $1,000 a month for your water, um, not running the dishwasher, you know, using paper plates because you don't want to run the dishwasher too often. Um, there was a picture of people loading laundry in their car to take it to a friend's house in Scottsdale who had city water. Um, so this could be our reality. And I think that we need to learn to live with smaller amounts of water because we live in the desert and we have really high water usage. And one of the pieces of legislation that I hope to see in this session is, is a pricing structure for our water that is transparent so that we don't hide it in Utah in our property taxes, but we put it out there in front of us. And we if we charge a little more for water, if we make it more transparent, psychologically, we humans will use less water. So there are things that we haven't even tried yet that are really easy. Yeah. Dr. Bonnie Baxter, She's a microbiologist at Westminster College and also the co-founder and the director of the Great Salt Lake Institute. Bonnie, we're so glad you could join us today on Cool Science Radio. It's such an important conversation and it cannot be delayed any longer. I agree. Thanks, Lynn and Katie. Thanks for um, really taking on this issue. I appreciate it. And that was Bonnie Baxter, again, the co-founder and director of Great Salt Lake Institute at Westminster College. And to read more of that report, go to gsl.byu.edu. And I just want to mention, a lot of people have said, well, now that we have this huge snow year, all of our reservoirs are going to be filled back up. And yes, it's a wonderful thing. But literally to save Great Salt Lake, we would need... Two or three years like this is what Bonnie has said uh, that knock it out of the park in terms of snowfall and five years of just normal snowfall, the likes of which we have not seen for a really long time. And of course, we love this year. It's wonderful, but it comes, well, I don't know, Katie, when was the last time you saw a year like this? I think it was 96, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, one quick note, next Wednesday, or excuse me, next Thursday, we will be preempted here at Cool Science Radio. We'll be looking forward to the Sundance Reel, which takes the place of all public affairs, our shows next week. So stay tuned for that as we welcome the Sundance Film Festival into town here. So we will see you on uh, February 2nd with Cool Science Radio. Just quickly want to also introduce our guest co-host Katie Mullally, who's been with me now for about a month. We're switching up uh, a little bit the format of how we do Cool Science Radio. John Wells will still be joining from time to time, but Katie's here and we're really excited. Katie, tell us just quickly about your background. Thanks, Lynn. I was, I'm thrilled to be part of this. I actually have both of my degrees are in science communication. 
And so to be one of those rare people that's actually using her degrees is a fun thing, and I'm thrilled to be part of Cool Science Radio. Well, it's great to have you. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. On January 11th, all planes in the nation were grounded. It was a move employed by the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, over a computer issue. It forced a 90-minute halt to all U.S. departing flights. More than 10,000 flights were delayed and over 1,300 were canceled. It was the first national grounding of flights in about two decades. Joining us now to talk about what happened is technology editor for Scientific American, Sophie Bushwick. She also joins us to talk about some crazy new things going on with AI. Sophie Bushwick, welcome back to Cool Science Radio. Thank you. Well, we always love talking to you because you have, oh, an enviable position there at Scientific American where you just get to study and research and write about what excites you. And we will get to AI in a minute. But <laughs> first, let's talk about what happened last week on January 11th. Yes, so last week um, there was a small software problem that had big a big impact on the air system. So there were delays, like you said, with the FAA, and that just had a ripple effect that had a big disruption on air travel as a small delay often does have in that system. Uh, the culprit here, at first there was some worries that it might be foul play, but it turns out the culprit was a file within a system that alerts pilots when there's emergencies. It's called Notice to Air Mission, N-O-T-A-M. And the the issue was a there was a database file that was corrupted that had had some errors in it. And the backup system in the backup system, that same file was also corrupted. So the FAA had to spend some time ironing that out, figuring out what was wrong and fixing it so that pilots could, you know, receive information about issue any issues that might be going on. And um, that that's this is a system that's that's pretty old and that uh, but still is not going to be replaced for several more years. That's really interesting. An old system within the FAA, it seems like, you know, we saw this over the holidays, especially with Southwest and a uh, with Southwest Air and sort of an outdated software program used for scheduling and or, or re rescheduling. And, and it is just fascinating to see the widespread implications of something like this. I mean, this one was only a 90 minute halt of all airlines and look look at the ripple effect it's kind of crazy absolutely well the the airline the world of, of airlines and flying it's just it's a world of a lot of interconnected interdependent systems so like this was a small issue with one small part of the larger infrastructure but it ground everything to a halt while it had to be fixed and there's a lot of si parts of the system that are old like you mentioned southwest absolutely their software for for scheduling they had a lot of issues with it because it wasn't capable of responding quickly to the uh to the the disruptions caused by bad weather. Um, this is an issue with a lot of systems that they were designed for um, a time when the volume of information they would have to manage was much smaller. And so they struggle with the larger amount of information they have to deal with now. And then another issue is because these are old, it requires specialized knowledge to fix them when there's an issue. And 
and the pool of people who have that knowledge gets smaller because people are adapting to more modern systems. They might be experts in in solving something uh, for an updated system, but if they're given a 30-year-old system, they might struggle more or it might be, oh, you need to call in, you know, Joe Computer, who is the one guy who knows how to fix this. Well, you just mentioned the amount of data and information that the FAA collects. I mean, we think about just our cell phones, the, the amount of data that comes into my life, my cell phone from five years ago couldn't handle it. Mm-hmm. And now we're expecting the FAA to continually bring in expanding, expanding data. What kinds of data and information is the FAA collecting? So there's a lot of information that the FAA is collecting, but also that a lot of other airlines a lot of the airlines individually are collecting and dealing with and that, um, you know, the software system that allows the customer to interface with the system and buy tickets. That's also a complex system. So it's 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 information from all of these sources. It's information from air traffic control. It's information about the weather. It's information about the schedules. It's a ton of stuff. And it's all being managed by these sort of interlocking systems, each of which is, you know, vulnerable to disruption and can cause these big ripple effects like we saw last week. Well, speaking of ripple effects, I read that Canada suffered a, a temporary shutdown as well that same day. They don't think they're related, but have you heard anything about the Canada shutdown? I, I haven't heard updates on that, but um, was this also with airlines? Yes, it was their their NOTAM, their NOTAM system shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that doesn't surprise me necessarily. I mean, in the past several years, we've had, we've seen a few different incidents where airlines have had, um, airline either airlines have had issues or, you know, uh, larger, larger system like the systems that rely on NOTAM have received their own issues. So a lot of these airlines, you know, in the U.S. and out are using this older software, these older systems. And so they are really vulnerable to this kind of disruption. Hmm. I'm wondering if there's any sort of, <laughs> you know, anti-corruptible, you know, system that can be applied in the back end to these these systems. So, you know, in this case, it was a file that was corrupted and it had the ripple effect. But, you know, what are the assurances and the backup systems and things like that so this sort of thing doesn't happen? Or will we see, as you're talking about, with more and more volume of data, um, this happening more often? So the, the problem is that no, any system that is installed, it might be cutting edge and state of the art and function great, but it's going to get old. You know, all of these systems age. I think the key to to keeping them running is updating them regularly and doing maintenance. You know, having people on staff who know how to solve these problems. In this case, the backup was also had the same corrupted file that was causing issues with NOTAM was causing issues with the backup system. So that's why it was still an issue. But if if the system if we want these systems to function right, they need to be updated, but they also need to, that update needs to be updated. They need to have a system in place to do constant updates and maintenance on these aging systems. And that's where you start getting into bureaucracy and politics and red tape. There's a lot of of obstacles to, to, to fixing these systems, many of which have nothing to do with technology. And it's all about, you know, a petty squabble between uh, contractors or, you know, other issues like that, that just make it really hard to maintain this very complex, very large system. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it makes you feel like these systems, <clears throat> these institutions need to become a lot more nimble, you know, or we see a new a new one pop up, like in the case of, you know, SpaceX as a mm -hmm. private a private contractor or a private business sort of in reaction to these slower moving, you know, many more cogs in the machine like NASA. And it makes me wonder if there's anything parallel to the FAA. Well, I don't think that there's a private industry parallel to the FAA, but there are quite a few private companies that do you know, they provide software or they might be, um, they might have a contract with a company that has a contract with an airline. So there's a lot of like a vendor that makes a specific uh, part of a software infrastructure tool that we've never heard of, but that's vital to the system. That could be coming from a private vendor that then sells it to, uh, you know, maybe this a company that provides software for a specific airline. So there are private companies involved in some of this process. There's just a lot of them. And it's sort of a tangle that makes it, yeah, that it's still, I think that that's not necessarily going to to solve the problem, but I think that it's, yeah, I think that it, in any complex system, you're going to have glitches, but there just really need to be backups and uh, plans for when these kind of glitches occur to reduce the impact that they have so that they don't cause all these uh, problems and delays and cancellations up and down the travel line. What sort of reports have we heard from Washington with regards to how they intend to fix this? Are they going to create a backup to the backup, update the system? Like you said, it's going to take a few years. I mean, is there something we can count on? in the next year to help this problem? So um, there's about six years before the NOTAM system is scheduled for an update. Um, they are, there's, this isn't the only issue that people have had with the system. So the original reason that the system exists is to alert pilots to, um, to problems and issues that might be going on. But according to experts, it it's very unwieldy. It just, it kind of dumps information on a pilot and so they have to kind of sort through it to find the really critical safety information that might be relevant to them. So the FAA is uh, putting out a request to Congress for money to, to solve this issue, to, to try to update the system a little bit. But um, this is a long process, you know, getting money out of Congress and then actually applying it to fix the issue uh, can be a real uh, long drawn out thing. So I don't know that we should expect any fixes anytime soon. What sort of technology do the pilots have access to? You say they're getting dumped this enormous amount of information. I can imagine they're sitting in a cockpit, probably with an iPad or you know some sort of data resource to understand what their options are. What are they using? I'm not. I'm not specifically aware of the actual tech that the pilots are using. I think the issue here was in the sort of back end of the system, the part that needs to deliver those alerts to them. But yes, I would assume they have an interface that they can receive those alerts on. I'm just not sure if it's you know an iPad or a built-in screen or something like that. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with technology editor at Scientific American, Sophie Bushwick. Uh, I wanted to make a segue into the AI conversation because there are some really interesting articles that are coming out now and have come out over the last month in Scientific American about AI 
And it, it makes me wonder if the segue could be, you know, all this data dump that the pilots are getting about uh, what's going on on runways that may be uh, impeding safety or landing or something like that, whether it's an ice storm or fog or whatever. It would seem to me that the application of AI, and you wrote an article last month about <laughs> the positive things that AI can bring us, mm -hmm. you know, th that something like that could really detect what's really going on and present it to pilots in such a way that is more cogent and, and accessible. That's absolutely a, an application that I think AI could be used for. You know, one of the stories in that roundup of ways that AI has been used for positive purposes was about a, an algorithm that researchers had tested out for helping in hospitals. It could help detect which patients are at risk of a life-threatening complication called sepsis so that um, they can be monitored more closely and treated more effectively and more quickly because time is of the essence when it comes to treating that. And one of the issues that I learned about when researching that was that uh, there have been other AI systems, but they've kind of overloaded doctors with alerts. They were constantly getting pings about issues. And so, you know, we they couldn't sort through all this flood of information to find what was most vital. So often they would just turn the system off and ignore it. And so the goal of an algorithm can't just be to look at the information and draw a conclusion. It has to be to deliver that to humans in a way that we can use really effectively. And so in the case of that, in of that study, the researchers considered what kind of alerts uh, doctors and healthcare professionals would be getting with the system. And I think that you could do a similar thing if you had a more up-to-date notification system for airline pilots. You could be saying what's the most relevant information the person needs to get and to have that, you know, be top of the list. The AI could help sort things like that. Yes, absolutely. Well, as a technology editor and a science writer, you must just have some crazy stories coming across your desk. And one of those, well, in the news a lot recently has been this OpenAI's chat GPT. And I don't know what GPT stands for, but it is a new type of, of AI technology that... Oh, well, it has everything to do with text and language and voice. Can you explain what it is? Sure. So GPT, ChatGPT, there have been other systems called GPT. You might have heard of GPT-3 before you heard of ChatGPT. And it's 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 an acronym because it stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, which is kind of a mouthful. So I'm going to go ahead calling it GPT. But this is a, a type of AI that uh, people have started calling generative AI, where you type in something and you get something in response. So earlier, we months before ChatGPT came out, the buzz was all about these generative AI image generators. So programs like DALL-E, where you would type in, you know, uh, a bear wearing a top hat and it would show you, it would produce these pictures of bears wearing top hats for you to look at. So um, generative AI is, the, is a big deal right now because it's gaining the ability to mimic what humans would produce in terms of writing, in terms of uh, visuals, as with Dali. There's some uh, discussion now of using it to generate videos. You know, even, even people are talking about maybe video games. You know, I want to play a video game that's like a mix of uh, Mario and Pac-Man and see what the, the AI would produce. So we don't have a specific program to do that, but you can see how a similar system to the ones that produce text could produce a playable interface. 
So as a writer myself, I'm fascinated with this development of all of this new AI generated text and content and images, talking about this with other artists. And, you know, there's quite a bit of controversy because of, you know, the work that you put into a piece can take years or months and this AI can create a children's book in the course of a weekend. One thing we've been talking about and I haven't seen enough information on is who actually owns the content that's created. Is it the person that's inputting this information into the system or is it the system itself? That's a great question. Um, it depends on what model you're looking at. I think that a lot of, some of this is open source software. So I believe the idea is that you type in a prompt, you get a picture out and you get to have credit for it. I mean, and at this point, a lot of this art is still visibly not human. It's 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 got some weird artifacts that you can pick out to say, oh, this is clearly a fake. And so I don't think that uh, human artists are necessarily saying, taking credit for it. And it, the, but the issue is, you know, what if it gets better? What if someone says, I drew this picture, but it was a picture that they got out of the AI. So there might be some issues with, um, you know, requiring someone to take credit, to, to, to give credit to the system, the AI system that helped them produce something. And to alert people when the interface that they're talking with is AI. Um, there was a recent controversy where researchers um, who, who provided uh, emotional counseling online were using a bot, using ChatGPT to to write prompts for people to help them, people who were going maybe through an emotional crisis. And the researchers claimed that it was very effective and people liked it until that they learned that it was being, that what they were getting was written by an AI. And then they felt this distrust as makes complete sense to me. You know, it, it just, it seems like there, there was a big brouhaha about this because ethically, it's ethically dubious to have someone talking with an AI when they think they're talking with a human and to not tell them that. Yeah, so do you think there'll be any sort of technology or or requirements to indicate? I mean, we can't even get GMO foods marked. So how will we have, you know, basically AI developed content marked? Is there a way to make sure that we know what it is we're looking at? So there are some systems designed to detect AI generated text. But then there are also systems that you can type AI generated text into and it's supposed to change it enough so it seems like it could be human generated instead. So it's going to be a cat and mouse game for the foreseeable future. And even humans have varying levels of success. There was a recent study where scientists were given some real abstracts of scientific papers. That's the part at the beginning of the paper that sort of summarizes what's in it. Some of the abstracts were written by humans. Some of them were written by AI. And the scientists only, they were only about two thirds accurate in picking out the uh, the AI written abstracts. And that was uh, that was not as good as an AI detecting software, but the AI detecting software wasn't 100% perfect either. So this is absolutely going to be an issue going forward and something that I'm keeping an eye on. And so the difficulty in detecting a gener AI generated text um, I would think that it's much bigger than in, for example, you sent us a conversation between the German filmmaker Werner Herzog and the Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek, and they're having this chat about a, a film. And so it's voice-generated AI, and 
I'm not sure exactly how, I'm sure you can tell us how it was generated, but you can tell because of intonation patterns. I thought it was pretty easy to tell that it wasn't a real conversation, but it was their real voices. And they both have these very distinct um, voices when they speak in English with their uh, particular accent. Um, tell us about that. And and that that seems to me, you know, that it that it's more easily available to distinguish that it is AI, but text wouldn't be as much. Is that how it goes? So there's there's this project is actually fascinating and terrifying because it combines two forms of technology in a way um, that that is really fascinating. So the one technology is the generative AI. So the content of their conversation, the words that they're speaking, those are written by a program similar to ChatGPT that generates text. And it's specifically generating text, trying to imitate these two. Um, this is a project by uh, the researcher Giacomo Michelli. And he, um, in addition to using this generative AI, he used deepfake technology. He used uh, a voice clone for each uh, of them. As you say, they have very distinctive voices, very distinctive accents. And so he was able to train a, um, a program to imitate their voices. And he did this as a proof of concept or as a demonstration. It's very catchy, right? You can kind of, it. even though the the conversation superficially sounds deep. Once you start looking at what they're actually saying to each other, you realize that it's not, it, it's, it's you know, it's nonsense. It's an AI talking to itself. Um, but you could imagine, you know, a talking head on a, a pundit on, on the radio, right? Who's chattering on and on and on, sounds like a human voice, sounds like human words, but it's an AI voice and it's an AI, uh, the words that are coming out are coming from an AI chatbot. You can imagine a voice like that spewing out misinformation in a way that sounds like it's coming from a human who believes it in a way that lends it credibility that would, you know, something that was known to be written by AI wouldn't have. And this technology is just going to keep getting better. So uh, after the, the researcher in this case developed this project, this he calls it the infinite conversation between these two, um, you know, philosophical uh, speakers. Uh, Microsoft announced that they had a new tool that allowed them to clone a voice based on just three seconds of recorded audio. And they could make a, this program is called Val-E. And Microsoft, thankfully, has not released it to the public to play with. Uh, and the researchers say that if they were to release it, they would want to build in a sort of watermark so that any audio generated using this tool could be detected, that it did come from the tool and it wasn't actually the person it was imitating. But you can see how easy it is to create a an imitation of a real person and then to have them say whatever you want or to have them chatter on infinitely with text generated by an AI. Mm, wow. It's an incredible world and it really shows that we are going to have to start paying more and more attention, listening, have better listening skills, have better reading and decoding skills in a world where we are actually becoming less able to pay attention. Absolutely. So well, Sophie Bushwick, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us again on Cool Science Radio. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. Thank you again for tuning into Cool Science Radio here on KPCW. And thank you again for Dr. Bonnie Baxter with the 
Great Salt Lake Institute, and also Su Sophie Bushwick, editor at Scientific America. To learn more about our shows, go to kbcw.org.